Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week on the podcast, we choose a new book on some area of sports and we interview the author. This week, my guest is journalist John Fox, and we are discussing his book, The Ball, Discovering the Object of the Game, published in May 2012 by Harper Perennial. On a beautiful summer day, while tossing a baseball in the yard, John Fox's seven-year-old son asked his dad a simple yet profound question. Why do we play ball anyway? The question launched John on a four-year trek to find an answer, bringing him to places like Springfield, Massachusetts, Cooperstown, New York, and Canton, Ohio, the hearths, respectively, of basketball, baseball, and the National Football League, as well as to palaces in France, remote Mexican villages, and desolate Scottish islands. The result of these travels and his research is an enlightening and entertaining account of how and why people have been playing with balls through the centuries. John brings the research skills of an academic to his book. As we hear in the interview he drew from the fields of archaeology, anthropology, and history. And he also has a storyteller's eye for the telling, colorful scene and the fans' appreciation for the importance of games in our lives. This is a book to recommend to fans of all ball games. I think you'll learn a lot from it, and you'll enjoy reading of John's travels. I certainly enjoyed talking to him about the book. So let's turn to the interview. My guest on the podcast this week is John Fox. John, welcome to New Books and Sports. Great to be here, Bruce. Thank you. So I'll start by asking you to give a bit of an introduction of yourself. You have a background in academics as well as in journalism. You've done work for the BBC and for public radio here in the States. You've written for the magazine Smithsonian, for the online journal Salon. So can you tell us about your, your academic training and your research and then, and then how and why you made the turn into journalism? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I've had a I've had an interesting journey in my career. Um, my start was as an academic, as you said. Um, I studied archaeology as um, as an undergrad at Boston University, and uh, kind of got hooked on the past and on uh, on culture, human culture, at that point. And uh, and I went to Harvard University uh, to do my graduate work. Ended up getting a, a PhD in anthropology there. And uh, my focus um, as an academic uh, was on Central America, the Maya uh, civilization of Central America. And um, I, uh, I spent a number of years uh, excavating in Honduras and in Mexico, um, as well as other parts. Um, I ended up uh, focusing on a, uh, the ancient Maya ball game, um, which was played uh, in that area. And that's really what what uh, hooked me into this subject matter that, that eventually evolved into this book. Um, after I got my Ph.D., I taught for a while, and, and I, I, I enjoyed it, but I, I was much more interested in kind of the journalistic side. I was interested in, you know, the storytelling uh, side of anthropology. I, um, I, I jumped ship from the straight-ahead academic world 
and had an opportunity to spend uh, a number of years with a a groundbreaking internet learning uh, uh, venture called the Quests. And um, as a member of the Quests um, and eventually kind of heading it up, um, I led a team of uh, kind of explorers, really, and, and multimedia specialists around the world creating um, content that we would upload in real time that would be followed by classrooms around uh, the country. And uh, we created a curriculum around it. It was this idea of kind of uh, experiential learning. And, uh, and that really hooked me into the whole notion of uh, using travel as a way of engaging with history and culture and, uh, and turning that into stories. So, um, so from there, I started publishing in Outside Magazine and Smithsonian. And uh, based on my travels and my exploration, that kind of opened up the world of journalism to me and, and brought me to where I am today. So how to become a, a world adventurer? <laughs> I don't think there's a I don't think there's a blueprint anywhere in there, but that's how I did it at least. So, reading your uh, the introduction to your book, I could tell that you, uh, while you have familiarity with academic literature and and you have the 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 research uh, skills of an academic, you also have something of a I don't know what would be the appropriate word a distaste for for academic literature. Yeah, you know, distaste is a strong word. Yeah, yeah, but I, guess I, uh, I, you know, I, I guess I got a got a little tired of uh, the world of academia. It just it just didn't fit me, and uh, particularly from the writing perspective, I, uh, you know, when I was studying, for example, the ancient Mayan ball game, and uh, you know, I was, and in, in, in many respects, still am a, an authority on the subject in the academic realm. Um, I published peer-reviewed articles in all the, the right places. Um, but when I go back and read those things now, I, I, in, as a writer at least, I don't find them particularly readable um, <laughs> or engaging. And uh, so, so for me, it's really just how I like to express myself. I, I found academia to be a little constraining, um, at least anthropology in that regard. And, and, and really going into the world of journalism and writing has just opened up more possibilities for me, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess it would be appropriate to ask at the start, how many balls do you and your family have in your house? Ah, <laughs> uh, wow. I would say we probably have about about 15 or so balls uh, at any given time my uh, my kids play the the full uh the full coverage of sports from soccer to lacrosse to baseball tennis basketball um you know and then i've got of course a collection of more obscure um more obscure balls from my travels that have found their way into my house so um they're definitely all around <laughs> I was I was thinking of this the different kind of balls in in my house and their uses after after reading the book and and I think your household is a lot like mine that we've got basketballs tennis balls baseballs footballs just plain bouncy rubber balls and and since I finished your book I've been watching my kids over the last few days and how they play with the balls and on the one hand they they play with them you know my son will take a tennis ball and go and throw it against the garage door with his with his baseball glove yeah but th but the balls also function something like uh i don't know what the social scientific term would be but it's almost like they're companions or it's like they're mm -hmm. security blankets 
You know, yeah. my, my sons especially are always doing something with a ball, even when they're sitting still. And, and my older daughter, you know, when she wants a break from the rest of the family, she'll go out and shoot a basketball. And I, I think this, it connects to your book in that you make the case that, that playing with balls really goes deep into our makeup as humans. Yeah, that's that's really true, and I, you know I've observed the same thing in my house. You know, my my son, who's a big basketball fanatic, will he can't just watch TV. He's like sitting and spinning a basketball yeah, yeah. on his hand while he's doing it, and um, and likewise, kind of disappearing out back to shoot baskets. And yeah, you know, a lot of what I found in my research, and particularly around kind of this, the origins of play, is that play is a way to uh, focus our brains um, in a way that um, kind of brings our capacities together in so many ways. So the physical um, and the cognitive kind of merge um, in the play, uh, in playing with something like a ball in a pretty unique way. And it's not just for humans either. I mean, uh, in my research, I I wanted to get at the fact that play is, is not just something we invented, but is something that most other mammals do. And um, and we're, in a sense, kind of hardwired for it. So there is this kind of, uh, this kind of cognitive connection there that's very real. So have you found a, a human society that that doesn't have ball games um, I have there they definitely uh, have existed um, in fact I was uh, in my last chapter I talk about uh, being down toward the end of the book in Ecuador in the Amazon rainforest and um, while I was there I met a uh, Warani Indian they're, they're one of the tribes down in the Amazon and a uh, fairly fierce kind of uh, warrior uh, tribe and uh, I got to talking with him, and, uh, and and he explained to me that, in fact, they never uh, played ball traditionally. They didn't have ball games, at least in that part of the Amazon, although in other northern parts of the Amazon they played with rubber balls, as they did in Mexico. Um, but they, uh, they had other objects that they kind of treated balls, including termite mounds, <laughs> which uh, uh, don't, don't bounce very well, but apparently roll down hills and, and uh, do other things that are quite entertaining. Um, but once the, uh, once the Warani uh, got exposed to civilization and, and discovered the wonders of the ball, they became absolutely you know, obsessed with them to the point where they are big soccer players and uh, and big fans of soccer when they can get themselves to a TV set uh, somewhere, and um, you know there's there's a, a kind of tragic but fascinating story actually, where um, in 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 that territory of Ecuador there's been a lot of oil exploration and um, a lot of uh, oil companies, multinational oil companies, trying to buy up land to to prospect, um, and it's a big environmental issue, of course. But um, in one case, uh, an Italian oil company bought rights from the Warani to, to drill and put a pipeline through their territory. And there's an account of what the Warani asked for in return for giving up access to thousands and thousands of acres of you know, prime rainforest. And it was things like sugar, flour, medicine, um, a couple of other things and 10 soccer balls. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, it was it was it's been highlighted as you know how awful and exploitative and, and absolutely it is and was. But on the other hand, I thought, well, yeah, you know, if I'd never seen a ball before and I suddenly discovered it, I'd probably want to get my hands on ten of them too. Yeah. So you do have a theory that that you bring out uh, at the beginning of your book that. Uh, at least handling round objects and throwing them uh, goes back, that there's some evolutionary explanation to it. Yeah, there's, um, you know, when you get into the sort of prehistoric past there, uh, you don't have obviously the benefit of any kind of records and documents, and um, you have to kind of uh, unravel things from there. Um, but there is uh, there's clearly a connection between um, the hunt um, as we know it and as it took place in Paleolithic times and um, and the sports we know today um, the, the the very things and qualities that that lead to a successful hunt and would have for Paleolithic hunters in, in say the northern parts of Europe um, you know collaboration um, you know dexterity uh, nimbleness um, kind of good hand-eye coordination um, the uh, speed, agility, teamwork, all of those things that are really crucial to, um, to a successful hunt and to, to feeding your family um, are the very things that have evolved into sport um, as we know it today. Um, so in a, in a sense, what I, what I argue in the book is that the hunt was the original, um, the hunt was indeed the original sport and, and the object of the game was the game itself and bringing the game back. Um, and that the um, that sports would have uh, would have evolved as a as a way of preparing for the reality of the hunt, and and you see this with um, with other animals. For example, dolphins, um, which I studied um, in in Florida, dolphins young dolphins learn how to um, how to hunt, how to avoid prey, how to survive in the wild by playing. Um, and there's been a lot of studies done on this where uh, they uh, they play, uh, first of all, dolphins play more than any other mammal except humans, and uh, their play f- forms patterns that uh, are actually preparation for survival in the wild. So while we think of play as this frivolous thing, you know, mm-hmm. both evolutionarily and uh, in the case of dolphins in the real world, it does uh, it does prepare you for sort of real life uh, real life survival um, and has those kind of skill based elements in it. Mm-hmm. So, in one of your early chapters, you talk about uh, early civilizations, ancient civilizations in the West: the Egyptians, Sumerians, the Greeks, and Romans. And and I'll ask, in looking at these these past civilizations, how were their ball games similar to ours? Would they be recognizable at all to us? Yeah, absolutely. They really would be. Um, the, the Egyptians, uh, we don't know nearly as much about, although we find their, we find the remains of their balls in tombs, um, you know, some made of leather, some made of papyrus and other materials. Um, they, uh, there's one case where a child's tomb in Egypt was found with, uh, you know, a, a fairly modern-looking uh, bowling set, um, just kind of waiting, pins just waiting to be knocked down. Um, obviously, not that different than than the the games of bowling that have evolved in our civilizations. Um, the um, the ancient Greeks played uh, a number of ball games. Um, they played one uh, called uh, Episkyros, and uh, and Episkyros was a was seems to have been a rugby-like game that involved. 
uh, handling um, a uh, kind of leather ball, a, a stuffed ball, um, and um, and having to um, avoid being tackled and uh, tossing the ball back and forth. Um, the the rules are are kind of vague in a lot of the accounts, but uh, again, in terms of how it involved ball handling and team play, not that different than the games we play today. One of the uh, one of the things I found interesting about the Greeks, however, is that for them, um, of course, you know, the, we think of the Greeks, we think of the Olympics as you know the mm-hmm. uh, the ultimate kind of sporting event. Um, the Olympics never included ball games, um, despite the fact that ball games were played fairly extensively. Uh, one of the reasons is that the when the Olympics just, uh, when the Greeks described the Olympics, they used a term called agon, A-G-O-N, which is the root of uh, agony or agonistic. And for them, the sports of the Olympics were these kind of struggles of body and will, um, that they were preparation for warriors, preparation for battle. Um, they were not. They didn't think of them as play, and in fact, they never used the term games to describe the Olympics uh, ever until modern times. In contrast, ball games were considered games. They were considered sort of frivolous and fun and playful entertainment um, diversions that were good for getting exercise, but in a completely different category than uh, than these kind of Olympic sports. So. It is different in that you know we have merged those concepts obviously, and we our our sports, our ball sports, um, are are serious competitions where there there are significant stakes and they are struggles of body and will. Um, there's still the play element in them, but sometimes the play element takes a backseat to um, to the struggle element. Um, for the for the Greeks, they kept those two things fairly separate. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the Greeks had leather balls, the Egyptians had balls made of papyrus. Looking across Western, uh, East Asian civilizations, Mesoamerica, what were what were balls made of? Oh, they were uh, they were made of all kinds of things. Um, there, uh, for example, in Mesoamerica and in the Maya area, they made uh, they made balls out of solid rubber. Um, so the the people of Central America and Mexico were the first to discover the properties of rubber and and uh, and figure out how to um, how to vulcanize it up to a certain point, which was something the West didn't figure out till Goodyear came along in the 19th century. So they were able to fashion these you know wonderful solid rubber balls that were kind of like super balls mm-hmm. in terms of their action um, and developed a game around that. Um, in um, in other parts of the world, they made do with whatever they had available. So there are tribes in South Africa that made balls from hippo hide, and there are um, accounts of Aborigines in Australia who made um, balls from opossum skin and kangaroo skin, and and so on. So uh, you know, everywhere everywhere you went in the different parts of the world, they made use of whatever they had available. In France, they played tennis with with balls that were stuffed with uh, with human hair, <laughs> um, which obviously they had plenty available. So, um, so every every material you can possibly imagine has been used at one point in time to make a ball. And and what is the what is the etymology of of the English word ball? Well, from what I've been able to find, it's a it's a very early word that emerges in in the English language um, as as early as the 12th century uh, A.D. 
um, and uh, and it appears in uh, some of the some of the earliest accounts of the history of Britain. Um, uh, some of the books, in fact, that that uh, are the source for the Arthurian legends, and uh, in there they talk about uh, ball games being played. Um, at that time period, they're, they're, they start off being very vague about what the nature of the games are, um, and then a couple of uh, centuries later, um, in the early 1400s, the, the term football first emerges, where it's clear that they are um, driving, you know, balls forward with their feet, and uh, and that kind of from there we start to get accounts of the the emergence of this thing we know as football or soccer. So it's uh, it, it probably goes quite a far way back. Hmm. So you mentioned this this early form of, of football or soccer and in your in your travels for the book you visited the Orkney Islands and you have a chapter about this of how they still play there a version of of this traditional one of these traditional ball games that were common to to medieval European towns and villages. Can you tell us about these these traditional games in Europe and how the version that's being played today still today in Orkney? Yeah, um, Orkney is a fantastic place, and um, I was fortunate enough to visit there uh, one New Year's uh, a couple of years back. Um, It's a small island off the north of Scotland, uh, kind of extends into the North Sea, and um, can be quite uh, quite windblown and cold and and beautifully desolate that time of year. And um, twice a year um, on the Isle of Orkney at Christmas Day and New Year's Day, they play a game they call the Kirkwall Ba, um, B-A, which is an abbreviation for ball, of course. And um, the Ba goes back hundreds of years um, in, in its roots and in that place alone. And uh, the nature of the Ba is, is quite unique um, compared to any sport that we can compare it to today, to say the least. Um, so the island of, of Orkney and the town of Kirkwall is is literally divided down the middle. There's a street called Post Office Lane, which is a tiny, tiny lane right in the middle of town next to a cathedral. And if you're born on the upper side of town, um, you're, you're known as an uppie, um, and that's kind of a designation. That's what we call it your team for life, whether you like it or not. Uh, if you're born on the other side, down on the port side of town, you're, you're known as a dooney. Uh, likewise, it's uh, for life. And um, twice a year, um, a, uh, a homemade ball, a beautifully crafted uh, ball stuffed with cork and, uh, and made from very fine leather, uh, handcrafted, shellacked, um, so it has this kind of sheen about it, is thrown into an enormous scrum of men, 200-plus men, uppies and doonies, um, from the center of town, this this kind of market cross, which is in front of uh, this 13th century cathedral, it's quite spectacular. And for the next five or six hours, the two sides struggle over this ball, um, in you know a sort of rugby-like scrum. Um, the difference is that the rules are are few and far between. Um, the the play actually happens in the streets of town, so there's no playing field to speak of. Um, the, the, the windows and the doorways of shops are barricaded with heavy wooden barricades to keep the, the scrum from literally falling through the windows. And um, the object of the game is fairly simple. The uppies have to move the ball uh, up into their territory on the upper side of town and touch it to a particular wall. 
um, to win the game, and the Doonies have to move it down and submerge it into the port. And in between those two, really anything goes. <laughs> There's no uh, no rules to speak of. There's no uniforms. You you've grown up with these people for your whole life, so you have to know who's on your side and who's not. And um, and it's a really incredible affair. The entire town comes out, and and it's really it's a sport. But it, for them, when they talk about it, it's this. It's really like a communal right. It really brings them together and is a big part of their identity as a people. And this connects to uh, I know something about medieval medieval football in in mm-hmm. European villages. And one thing that that was similar is uh, so. So in Orkney, they're they're carrying the ball, I gathered. But something that was uh, similar is in in these traditional games, it wasn't that you go into the opposite team's territory and score in the goal. You're trying to bring the ball back into into your territory. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it is. It seems to be a holdover from uh, you know from these very early medieval games. Um, which are co- sometimes called medieval football or mob football, mm-hmm. and the original games would uh, would involve, say, one village against another or one parish against another. There's a, there's an account from France of a game that had upwards of 600 players um, at once, and uh, and yes, the the object of the game was to was to claim the ball, claim this this object for your side for posterity. And not to sort of penetrate the defenses of the other team, so that seems to be that seems to be a vestige of earlier games that that along the way kind of shifted and shifted toward this idea of sort of pushing into and having to defend territory. Mm-hmm. So you didn't participate in the scrum in Orkney. Oh no, I'm I'm not crazy <laughs> enough to jump in there. <laughs> you you did play though the older form of tennis when you were in France, and from from your book, from reading your book, this just struck me as incredibly difficult. That that traditional form of tennis. Yeah, it, it really is. It's a it's a very complex and challenging game to learn, but but also really interesting. Um, so um, the the game of tennis um, originated in France. Um, pretty much around the same time as football. So, you know, the earliest accounts are from the 13th century or so. And uh, it was known as jeu de palm, uh, which translates as the game played with the palm of the hand. So when it first started, there was no racket involved. There was no net involved. It was a kind of handball game. And this game was played in the uh, monasteries of France, uh, which is where it got started. And monks you know, presumably had a lot of free time on their hands when they weren't praying and doing penance, um, would play uh, this game of jeu de palm in the cloisters and use the, the penthouse roofs of the cloisters and the flying buttress and the courtyard uh, stones itself as their playing field. And then um, over time, as the royalty and the young young princes were being educated in the monasteries, they kind of got hooked on this game and it became the the sport of kings. So so every royal court in the 1400s and 1500s would have had um, one of these courts, uh, one of these tennis courts attached to it. Um, and in that period of time, they decided that it would have been, you know, the game was easier and more fun played with a, a racket and uh, and hitting the ball over over a net. Um, I actually had the opportunity to. Uh, travel back to Paris and play at a court 
um, at a place called uh, the Chateau de Fontainebleau, which is um, one of the royal palaces south of uh, Paris. And eight French monarchs have played on this court that dates to um, the early uh, early 1600s. And uh, it's a spectacular space, um, cavernous, cavernous kind of space. And uh, what I found most intriguing is a couple of things. One is the um, the balls themselves. Unlike modern tennis balls, where you buy a can in the store and you crack it open and you start playing, um, in the world of jeu de palm or what the English call uh, real tennis, um, you have to uh, the 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 club pro um, literally fashions every ball from hand, um, and it takes about 20 minutes to produce a single ball. Um, very carefully um, stuffing with cork, um, sewing the ball together, the different parts. Um, it, it's it's an elaborate process. So there's this kind of craftsmanship in the game. The other element that is fascinating is that the the court itself, the modern day court, is very much a reflection of the medieval cloisters uh, from which it originated. So when you stand on the court, you can very easily picture um, the the cloister features. There are these sloping penthouse roofs. There are galleries on the sides and in the back, um, which include spaces where you can score points. Um, there's a, a kind of flying buttress that they call the tambour, which juts very um, awkwardly into the court. And if you hit that, suddenly the ball that's going one direction is going at a 90-degree angle. Um, so trying to navigate that and play using all of those angles with a ball that has no rubber and very little bounce <laughs> makes for a very difficult and interesting sport. Uh, so you had mentioned the, the, how the, the club pro creates the balls, and, and you describe that in the book. And, and you had mentioned earlier the fashioning of the ball for the, for the game in Orkney. And this is something I, I, I found throughout the book. Even when you visit the factory in Ohio, that produces balls for the NFL. There's there's a reverence that these makers of balls in these different with these different games put into their work. Yeah, absolutely. It became it became a theme throughout the book. Um, this idea of um, the sort of tradition and uh, craftsmanship and care that that goes into these balls and and therefore into the kind of preservation of the game itself. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed that aspect. And, you know, among uh, when I was doing uh, the chapter on lacrosse, it was less so the, the balls, which are, which are now mostly rubber, and it was more the, the rackets. And I spent time with a traditional, uh, one of the few traditional um, Iroquois uh, lacrosse stick makers who, who starts with trees and, and works from there. And, um, there is something to that. You know, we, we think of the balls we play with, the equipment we play with today is fairly disposable, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can stop in at the sporting goods store. But these games that, that retain that kind of tradition um, and have that kind of craftsmanship involved, you know, it's, it's really a wonderful thing to connect with. Yeah, and then thinking of the, the modern, you know, the way modern balls are formed, uh, you mentioned all or, already Charles Goodyear, and it seems like in the, in the history of ball games, he's probably the most influential figure. Yeah, Goodyear. Um, Goodyear made a big difference for the world of sport. Um, <laughs> it'd be hard to imagine most of our modern day sports without uh, without rubber and usable vulcanized rubber at that. 
Um, so you, you, when you think about football, for example, and here I'm kind of thinking about all forms of football, soccer, rugby, American football, um, in the early years, the, the game was played with um, a ball that would have been would have been a pig skin, so the, the intestine of a pig, which would be inflated and, and closed off, and then uh, that surrounded by a leather cover. Um, so very kind of uh, lumpy, irregular um, ball that didn't have uh, you know either a good bounce to it or or couldn't hold on to the the air pressure very long. You have to stop games and you know, un, un, untie the laces and um, retie the, reinflate and retie the pigskin. Uh, there's great accounts of a, um, one of the ball makers, uh, early ball makers in England in the town of rugby, um, where, of course, the, the version of, of football we know as rugby was, came about. And um, a fellow named Richard Linden, who was the shoemaker in town, um, in addition, also made the balls for uh, all the kids um, who were going to the public school known as rugby. And, uh, and they're the ones that came to him and said, you know, our, everybody else is playing a game where we're kicking the ball on the ground, so we've got this round ball, but we actually are playing a game where we like to carry the ball. Can you make, make the ball a different shape? And so he, he was the one who first kind of created that oblong ball that evolved into the American football. Um, but in his day... The, uh, the the insides of the balls were pig's bladders, and his his wife had the unenvious job of having to inflate these pig's bladders uh, by mouth. <laughs> and uh, and tragically, his wife uh, died of lung disease uh, attempting this on a regular basis. So uh, so when Goodyear came along with his patent for rubber and uh, and the world of rubber kind of swept sports, it not only saved games but it also apparently saved some lives. Yeah. Huh. So in my reading, a, a highlight of your book is is the chapter on the ancient ball games in, in Mexico. And as you said earlier, this is a topic you you research in your academic career. And uh, and I'll I'll say as someone who does historical research, I could I could really identify with this moment you had of immediate connection uh, with the subject of your past academic research. So could you tell us what you? Uh, what you found when you went to to Mexico to look at the the ball games there? Yeah, it's you know you asked me earlier about the distinction between being an academic and and journalist, and that and this this is a great example of it. I I had spent all of these years excavating ball courts and studying uh, monuments uh, from and the Aztec uh, depicting these games being played and. Uh, and uh, engaging the symbolism of the game, which was which was fascinating, but in terms of the sport itself and understanding how it was played and what it felt like to be played, I had no concept. Um, so many years later, um, as a journalist, I was able to travel to a small village in West Mexico, where about a hundred players um, uh, in two or three communities still play this game known as Ulama, which uh, which has about a three thousand year history. Uh, it's really the oldest continuous game uh, of its kind played in the world, and um, and it was really a wonderful experience for me because suddenly there were real players who uh, were were on a court uh, very different than what it would have been like um, in Maya times, but uh, playing essentially the same game um, with this 
um, amazing uh, solid rubber ball uh, made from um, kind of organic rubber harvested from nearby trees. And the the revelation for me in feeling the the bruise and the weight of this nine pound rubber ball against my hip was, you know, suddenly understanding things about this game that I could never have understood as an academic. And uh, one of those was, you know, why would you play a sport with your hip uh-huh. of all things? I think that's one of the, the things most people say, really, a hip? Why would you, of all the things to hit a rubber ball with, why would you hit it with your hip? Well, if you attempted to strike this ball um, coming at you, you know, 30 miles an hour um, with anything other than your hip, you could literally die or sustain massive injury. And I could experience that firsthand. Um, And there are accounts of, you know, from the Spanish of of this happening uh, with the Aztecs where players were hauled off the field dead from the blows of this ball but I didn't connect to me at all until I actually experienced it myself. Yeah, I've read about uh, the the ancient Aztec and Mayan games, and I've had students write papers about it for history classes. And it's it's something I've never understood how this game was played, and and mm-hmm. it's always described as being played with your hips. It 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 never dawned on me until reading that chapter when you handle the ball and and you have this eureka moment. Aha! Now I know why they play with their hips. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, that's the thing is um, I like to I like to imagine if we had to understand baseball a thousand years from now with only archaeological evidence and maybe a few, um, you know, a few box scores or some other random remains uh, trying to figure it out and trying to understand why you would ever run around this circuit of bases endlessly and what was the object of this game. Um, You know, we think about this Maya game because of the distance of time and culture as being so esoteric and strange. Um, In a way, it's probably not that strange. It's just that we don't have that kind of immediate connection to it to make it familiar. Mm -hmm. So thinking of the games in in Aztec and Mayan times, how did the how did the Colombian exchange uh, affect ball games and sports in the Americas? Well, it, it we certainly benefited from it, um, including Goodyear. Um, you know, the, the the most significant impact of that was the revelation to the rest of the world of of this substance called rubber. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, again, the the, the process for making rubber usable um, took you know hundreds of years longer uh, before we had anything uh, that we could do with it um, so that was one uh, but you know very quickly um, other games kind of swept into um, the world of, of Mexico and Central America um, the the most immediate impact was that the Spanish viewed the Mayan ball game as a form of sorcery um, they uh, and rightly so in the sense that the game was more than just a game. The game was was highly ritualized, and um, the ball courts were adorned with images of their gods. And uh, and in some versions of this highly ceremonialized game, players were were sacrificed. So there was this, you know, I guess you'd say dark side to the game. And uh, and because of that, um, in as early as the 16th century, Spanish attempted to ban this game. Um, and like they did many things that, that they didn't understand. 
Um, and, you know, it only survived in certain pockets, uh, such as the area that I got to visit. Um, so the game, you know, the game went underground um, and vanished in most of Mexico. Um, and, the, uh, you know, over time, obviously, Western sports uh, kind of found their way in. Uh, but, you know, there's the, 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 gift of, the gift of rubber to the rest of the world was, was uh, I think, something that we really have to uh, give credit to the people of Mesoamerica for because, again, trying to play sports today without it would be uh, quite impossible. Yeah, yeah. So the, the book is largely about uh, traditional games, but one of the interesting themes that comes out throughout the book, and this is a key part of the story of Ulama, is how traditional games are pushed out of existence. And this is something you were just talking about. So in looking at, at the history of various ball games in different different regions, did you see a common explanation for why traditional games disappear? Well, I'm not sure if there's kind of a, a single uh, explanation for it, um, but, but many historical kind of mm-hmm. moments that, that kind of transpire. I think what, I think what we see happen is, is there's, a, uh, there's a move towards uniformity and, and regulation that uh, begins in one place and sweeps across from there. Um, even if you look, for example, at the world of uh, of football, say in 19th century England and even in uh, in you know early 19th century America, the rules of the, there were really no set rules around how to play soccer or how to play football. Every town and region had its own set of rules. Um, in England, all of these uh, various public schools, whether it was rugby or Eton, played a different variation of the game based upon, you know, the space they had available, whether it was a field or, um, you know, a, a wall that they would play along, and that would influence the nature of the game. Um, and everyone was quite happy playing, you know, these traditional games and doing it their way. The desire, I think, to codify these games um, is really a 19th century, late 19th century phenomenon, where uh, the um, the whole idea of of organized play became something that was viewed as a positive thing in society. It was um, something to promote um, in terms of education. It was something to um, that would um, keep people off the streets or um, give them an outlet. Um, the whole idea of physical education only emerged in the second half of the 19th century. So I think in that process, you have this move towards regulation, organization, standardization um, that was happening in other parts of society. And in that, um, you know, traditional games obviously either got absorbed or they got pushed aside. So, um, so it is a fairly recent phenomenon, I would say, in, in all parts of the world. So one traditional game that does survive, which you discuss in the book, is, is lacrosse. Why is it that lacrosse has, uh, has survived? Um, it's it's a good question. You know, one of the things that I uh, I thought about and and didn't write about explicitly was um, the element of chance that allows some sports to um, to survive and even thrive, and others to to kind of vanish off the face of the earth. Um, lacrosse is is a survivor. Um, you know, it was it was a game that that developed among uh, the Native American peoples of of the New World, particularly in regions from the Great Plains and eastward and and, and the south. 
and uh, was played uh, going back, you know, at least to uh, the 1600s and probably earlier. And uh, it was uh, it was a game that fascinated the the uh, early settlers of the West um, who observed it and. When the French first came into Iroquois territory in the 1600s, they thought it was a variation of tennis because they saw people playing with these kind of racket-like objects with a ball, and and so for them it was it was just another form of tennis. Um, it was only in the in the mid 19th century that the two worlds kind of together and collided, and uh, and in Montreal. There was, uh, you know, some pickup games that started around lacrosse, where um, local um, local aficionados and sports enthusiasts kind of saw the, the nearby Mohawk Indians playing this game and said, "Well, that looks like that could be a lot of fun and, and interesting exercise." And they started uh, playing with them, and um, from there it really spread down the eastern seaboard, mostly through the, the private schools, through the kind of elite prep schools and colleges. Um, and really only in you know, the last 15, 20 years has it kind of taken on a, a, a more significant uh, role. I mean, it's a, one of the fastest growing games now internationally. Uh, but for the longest time, it was just this kind of eastern sport played in prep schools and on reservations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So something that was prominent in that chapter on lacrosse, but it seemed to me in my reading to be something consistent throughout the book, is that there is a a sacred element to ball games in history. Is that an accurate reading? It is accurate. It uh, you know when we say, for example, with the Maya that, that this game was more than just a game, I think uh, I think that's something we can say in a lot of early cultures and a lot of traditional cultures. Um, for the for the Native Americans, lacrosse is often described as the creator's game, um, and there's a lot of mythology around the origins of lacrosse. And um, on the one hand, it was connected to uh, uh, training warriors, and it was this kind of uh, warrior's game, and was considered to be, um, you know, this either uh, preparation for war or, in some cases, a, a substitute for war. But it also had this religious dimension to it where they would uh, play what were called medicine games um, to help cure cure people or cure the community. And um, even today um, in Onondaga, where I spend time up in upstate New York, um, if, they, if there's something ailing the community, something serious, um, the chief of the community can call a medicine game and bring out all the men to a special field using traditional rackets and a traditional deerskin ball and play a medicine game that's focused on healing has nothing to do with winning or scoring points. Um, I think if you look at, at a lot of the early and traditional sports, those elements are in there. Ball games were seen as um, a way of uh, perpetuating uh, the cosmos and fertility. Um, early soccer games, for example, were played on, on Shrovetide or Mardi Gras and had a lot of uh, symbolism like that around it where it was it was really about sort of ensuring that there was a good harvest. Um, so it's something that seems to run across a variety of cultures. And, you know, maybe there's an element of that still in the game and that we do have this religious fervor for our sports, even though they become obviously secularized over time. Mm-hmm. So, John, we're almost out of time. And uh, I'll ask what you're working on now. Do you have another book project in the works? 
Well, my next project uh, is actually a film based upon the book, oh, okay. um, which uh, which is, which I'm pretty excited about. The film uh, has a slightly different title. It's called Bounce: How the Ball Taught the World to Play. And uh, we've uh, I've teamed up with some filmmakers, uh, and we have been uh, shooting in various places, including in Scotland with the Kirkwall Ba. Um, we just came back from uh, a shoot in Brazil. Um, capturing uh, the passions uh, for soccer that run through that country and culture. So that uh, we hope to have that out in uh, early 2013. Um, and, uh, and it's going to be a really exciting project because obviously you read a book like this and uh, it's so visual yeah, and, yeah. And, and the ball and, and play is something you want to see in action. So I'm excited to be able to bring that to the screen. All right. Well, that sounds. So, are you narrating or, or writing, or? I will be. Uh, I'm writing, and uh, I'll also be a, uh, a commentator throughout the film. But we're uh, we're doing interviews with uh, a lot of scientists and athletes and coaches, and um, you know some of these people who are what I describe as kind of the keepers of the game who fashion balls and equipment. So it'll uh, it'll be it'll be an interesting and, and a, I think really beautiful film to watch. Yeah. So this is something that began, as you said, at the, at the start of the interview with your academic research. Are, are you getting to the point where you're sick of balls? <laughs> I don't think you can get sick of balls, I have to say. <laughs> you might get sick of talking about balls, but, you know, there's, there's always the playing part, and that part's hard to get sick of. You've been listening to an interview with John Fox about his book, The Ball, Discovering the Object of the Game published in 2012 by Harper Perennial. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like architecture, biography, and philosophy. If you like what you heard here, please friend us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. You can offer your comments and find daily links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.